you make more Bitcoin per unit of energy that you're consuming per watt. With all this said, it, it seems pretty clear that the narrative is starting to shift. The more prosperous humans become, the more energy each human consumes to do the things that they want to do. I, I don't think we're going to become a more productive society by consuming less total energy. We need some demand response resources to balance our energy grids. So our guest today is Daniel Frumpkin, and he's the chief content officer at Brains, a Bitcoin mining analytics firm. One of his goals is to educate Bitcoiners and everyone really about trends such as repurposing waste energy and renewable energy arbitrage made possible by Bitcoin mining around the globe. So Daniel, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. We're really looking forward to it. So let's just dive right in here. First question. Uh, when Brains was started back in 2011, what was the primary focus of the firm and how did the company end up going into what you guys are doing today? So Brains was co-founded by Jan and Pavel, who are two guys, two Czech guys with both having backgrounds in engineering programming. And Jan's background in particular was embedded devices, which ASICs are a type, ASIC mining rigs are a type of embedded device. So when they got into, when they founded the company, they were actually not doing anything related to Bitcoin mining. They were just doing embedded devices, engineering and consulting type stuff. And the way that it transitioned into now being fully dedicated to Bitcoin mining is that Pavel was actually childhood friends with Mark Platinus, nicknamed Slush, who was in Bitcoin since either 2009 or 2010. But he founded Slushpool in 2010. And by 2011, maybe even earlier, Jan and Pavel and Mark were all sharing an office together in Prague. So Mark was running Slushpool, doing all of his Bitcoin projects. Jan and Pavel were doing their own thing with other engineering projects. And around 2012 and 2013, they started talking more about Bitcoin and Jan and Pavel were getting into it a little bit. And then in 2013, Mark had the team and the idea to go pursue hardware wallets. And he founded Satoshi Labs with a couple of partners and they, they're the ones that produced Trezor. So at that time, it was clear, like the pool was already overwhelming to operate as a solo thing. Like Mark was working full-time on the pool and then he wanted to go do this other project. Uh, so basically he went to, to Jan and Pavel and, and asked them if they were interested in taking over operating the pool. And by this time, they were they were fairly interested in Bitcoin and, and thought it was a good idea. So Mark switched over to Satoshi Labs full time, basically, and Jan and Pavel switched over to Slushpool full time. And Brains has been a Bitcoin mining company 100% ever since then. Wow. So these guys were in it really early. They've been yeah. they've been at it at it for a while now. So they saw it all the way from that time up until I think a big defining moment for the industry was obviously in 2017 when you saw that division and the hard fork really. And I mean, being in the position that you guys are in, you guys have some big decisions to make. What are you going to support? Are you going to support Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash? So could you talk a little bit about that process, what that decision-making process was like, why you guys decided to to go and support Bitcoin instead of Bitcoin Cash. I'm sure that there's a lot of different variables that were part of that. For sure. So probably the, the most important context to have there is that at that point in time, the mining industry in particular was 
maybe the most Chinese dominated that it's ever been. Uh, so you have Bitmain as the leading hardware manufacturer, but and all hardware manufacturers really at that time were were Chinese. But Bitmain had at least like 80, 85 percent market share. And Bitmain was pro big blocks. They wanted Bitcoin Cash or what became Bitcoin Cash. So they're controlling both the hardware supply chain and then they also have massive influence in the pool industry because they're the owners of basically they're running Ant Pool. They also control Bitcoin BTC.com and then they have investments in other pools that are Chinese based or claim to be based elsewhere. But almost every major mining company at that time could be tied back to Bitmain somehow. So Bitmain had really, really massive influence on the industry. And that was why, why there was so much concern about big blocks and at that time, because the thought was miners are going to support big blocks and what's going to happen then, even if the nodes and the users don't support it, Bitmain alone has enough control and influence in this industry that maybe they can bring the majority of hash rate over to, to what became Bitcoin Cash. So the way that Brains and Slushpool handled that was first thing before the, the hard fork actually happened, there was the opportunity for miners to kind of signal what, what they supported with their hash rate. And while all of the Chinese pools just did whatever pool operators wanted to do, Slushpool was the first one to introduce a voting mechanism for the users. And basically the idea was, this is not technically our hash rate. It's all of the miners connected to the pool. They're the ones that actually own the hash rate, but we're the ones that are constructing the blocks. So we're the ones that will, will actually signal what we want. And so the idea of voting was like, let's listen to the users and what they want and let them signal what they want. So basically just put out a vote through the, the email system or something like everybody submits a form. What do you support? And then that's tied to their hash rate. And then we have a, a breakdown of like percentages, who supports big blocks, who supports small blocks. And then we can signal according to what the users want, as opposed to just whatever we want. And the, the users of Slush Pool favored small blocks. So that was the first thing is like, we kind of immediately took the opposite side of Roger Veer and, and Bitmain and all those uh, companies and mining entities that were favoring increasing the block size limit. And then when the hard fork eventually happened, then there's the other decision that you mentioned of like, will we have a Bitcoin cash pool? And that was kind of the same thinking as, as with the voting mechanism. It's like, we, we've always been a Bitcoin first company. Our, our like company brains is led by engineers. It's not led by business people. And our engineers like understood what the trade-offs being made there were. They favored decentralization over like transaction throughput. And they believed in the, the SegWit and Lightning Network and Layer 2 scaling plan. So on the one hand, it's like, we could potentially make more money by opening a Bitcoin cash pool. The same could be said for Ethereum and, and a bunch of other altcoins that we've never opened pools for. But at the end of the day, we like prefer to focus on Bitcoin. And it's been that way from the beginning since before most of these altcoins even existed. And it would have taken a lot of engineering effort to create that Bitcoin cash pool and maintain it. Would have had to like dedicate resources to it that we preferred to dedicate to Bitcoin. And then anybody who wanted to mine Bitcoin Cash, it's other pools were supporting it. So like you could go ahead and do it. But we've still to this day like 
all of our resources, all of our focus goes towards Bitcoin. That is great to hear. And I think that a lot of people don't really understand how big of a decision that was and that you guys played in that. And, and that's incredible to hear. I mean, what do you think would have happened if at that pivotal juncture, the majority of pools went and supported Bitcoin Cash instead? I know that it's all hypothetical, but I'm curious to hear what your perspective would be, uh, knowing everything you know. I, I would like to believe things would have worked out the same way, but maybe it would have been a little extra stressful and difficult for everybody who wasn't supporting the big blocks. Because ultimately, it's not like Slush Pool is the, the sole entity that prevented that. We were the main pool outside of China. We were the main ones supporting Bitcoin, keeping the small blocks. But at the end of the day, it was like the threat of the user-activated soft fork and the signaling by, the, by a majority of nodes or a large portion of nodes that, that they preferred small blocks and like all of the social pressure and the community coming together, which ultimately is what turned it into a hard fork as opposed to, well, a hard fork that, that Bitcoin ended up maintaining the majority of the value as opposed to it being like wholly one-sided where 100% of the mining entities wanted bigger blocks and, and Bitcoin Cash. So I think it was important to have Slush Pool as like somebody on the side of the group that opposed the big blocks within the mining ecosystem so that it wasn't just fully one-sided. Can you walk me through the centralization issues that people talk about when they talk about mining pools? I think that a lot of times these buzzwords will get thrown around and I don't think people really understand a lot of these mechanisms at play when you're talking about centralization versus decentralization and how mining pools tie into that. For sure. Yeah. The, the mainstream media pieces on Bitcoin mining very often uh, <laughs> make it sound like the fact that there's four or five pools with the majority of the hash rate means that those four or five pools control the network if they wanted to collude. And that's like, that's just not how it works. Uh, so maybe the most important thing to understand for people who aren't mining or aren't uh, familiar with how mining pools work is that basically all of the miners are putting a, a certain URL into their, into their mining machine that says, I want to mine with this pool. And they can put multiple pool URLs, like they can have a, a primary pool, a backup pool, uh, or any number of backup pools, depending on the, the firmware that's running on the machines. You can even split the hash rate from a single machine to multiple pools. In the event that miners are unhappy with their pool or they see their pool participating in something nefarious, like maybe block withholding or mining a bunch of empty blocks that technically shouldn't be happening or whatever the case may be, switching to a different pool that's not doing that takes about two, three seconds. It can even be programmed in that like, if you see XYZ behavior, automatically switch to my fallback. And that's the case for cases where it's not nefarious behavior, but maybe, uh, for example, if a month or two ago, there was a period where China just had just put the some of the mining URLs behind their firewall, and some miners were having connection issues with Chinese-based pools because of that, and, and there were server issues and stuff. And in those types of scenarios, a lot of miners will have it set up that like, okay, I haven't been able to reach my pool for one minute or two minutes or whatever the case may be, switch to this other pool automatically. So like that type of infrastructure is already in place with 
the majority of large miners in particular, but even small miners can do this. Like, like I said, a single machine can point its hash rate at multiple pools. So centralization at the pool level, there, there's like some risk there for sure. If all of the pools decide to collude and there's, and there's no pools that are being honest, then we have real problems. But that's just the game theory of Bitcoin. That's, that's incredibly unlikely to happen. Some pools trying an, an attack would be an opportunity for other pools to gain a lot of hash rate. And that's what I would expect to happen. So there's some tiny risk there, but it's, it's very, very tiny because of how easy it is to switch between pools. And there's really no incentive for pools to do this. Like they would be losing their, their entire business long-term for whatever, like trying to do a double spend or something. It's, it's never going to work out economically to, to try and attack as opposed to mining honestly. So the only reason it would happen is if like a government takes over a bunch of pools at the same time. And I don't believe any government is technically competent enough to even do that. But if they were, we would, it would be interesting to see how quickly miners would respond. But I would, I would not be too concerned long-term about the health of the network, even in events like that. It's funny hearing it laid out like that, because it really is almost like the perfect checks and balances within the Bitcoin network. It's like what human systems we haven't been able to do. For example, in the US, there is checks and balances, but it doesn't operate as intended. Bitcoin yeah. has shown over the amount of time that it's been around, granted, not a long time, but in that time, it has shown a proper checks and balances. And it really hasn't failed or crumbled once in all of those years where there have been multiple attacks on it. So it, it's really fascinating to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Even on that note of checks and balances, there's the the possibility of nodes all coming together and rejecting blocks from an attacking entity or entities that even if, let's say, 60-70% of miners are doing something that the majority of users don't want them to do, it, it would be technically challenging, but nodes could still come together and start rejecting those blocks and keep the Bitcoin chain with honest miners, not trying to do reorgs and double spends and stuff. So like checks and balances are, are really, really beautiful <laughs> in the Bitcoin system. Yeah, for sure. So to change gears a, a little bit, I'm wondering how have mining pools over time evolved? Because a lot of people really look in and they don't understand the inner workings of how these mining pools are interacting with the protocol. And if you were to just talk about how or some key events that have happened over time and how mining pools have evolved as the Bitcoin network has grown, uh, I think that that would be, that'd be really helpful. So I guess the first main event is the creation of mining pools. Like, why did they have to be created in the first place? That's, that happened in 2010, late 2010, as more people started to mine. It became, there's probably several hundred and then eventually a thousand or two thousand different people mining some with multiple computers eventually some started doing it with gpus and as that happened it meant that individual miners became less and less likely to find blocks in a reasonable time frame and so mining pools were created initially as more people started mining just with cpus and gpus in order to stabilize the revenue for those smaller miners who weren't likely to find blocks every day or every week or even every month. So that's when Slush Pool was created and a couple other ones were created around that same time, late 2010. 
early 2011. Everything kept operating pretty well for those maybe first year, year and a half. And then as GPUs gradually took over, or gradually and rather suddenly, I guess, actually, uh, when GPUs were taking over, then there became, there were some problems with, with like the mining pool infrastructure that was originally built for just the laptops and, and desktops that were mining. And at that time, Mark Platinus, who's running Slushpool, in order to solve that, he developed Stratum Protocol which was launched in 2010. And that was basically a communication protocol in between miners and pools that allowed them to send data back and forth more efficiently and securely, basically. Really, it was about efficiency. Uh, So it made it so that pools had an easier time validating the work that miners were submitting to them. And uh, miners had an easier time receiving block templates to work on and, and everything was done in JSON so that it was human readable and people could troubleshoot easier and build, build new stuff on top of it. And that protocol was so successful that it's still being used to this day, even as we've had an evolution of hardware from CPUs to GPUs to FPGAs to now ASICs, which are pretty much the only thing that's viable to mine since 2015, 16, if not sooner. And through all that time, Shredden Protocol has been serving the needs of miners and pools pretty well. So that was 2012 that that was launched. That was a huge event. The next big thing is probably the introduction of ASICs, which was 2013, but they really took off and became dominant 2014. And around that time, I think that's when mining really started to concentrate in China because of the advantage that miners had there with proximity to the hardware manufacturers. And because it was so much cheaper to manufacture the hardware in China than anywhere else, they gained dominant market share on hardware manufacturing, and that led to dominant market share on the mining itself. So that was a very big thing where the industry transitioned from being a lot of people in the US mining and and Europe and all over the world. To, to having the majority of hash rate be in China, which is, presents a lot of challenges, namely the language barrier and the kind of partitioned communities that exist because Chinese social media is totally different from, uh, from Western social media. So there, there was not a lot of like communication between Chinese miners and US and European and, and other Western miners. And the same could be said for the mining pools. So that was probably the the big trend from 2014 to up until that Bitcoin cash hard fork. And at that time, Slush Pool was the only major pool outside of China. And it stayed that way until 2020, I want to say, is when some other Bitcoin mining pools started popping up. And there's SPI crypto in Japan and a couple in North America now. So the reemergence of mining pools outside of China is a really big thing that's been happening recently. The largest mining pool in the world now is Foundry, which is based in the US, of course. And probably the defining trend for now is vertical integration of mining pools, which is a result of the fact that uh, something started with the Chinese mining pools and now it's just become the default in the industry is a race to the bottom in pool fees, that it's basically no longer profitable to run a mining pool. And it's extremely difficult and complex to run a mining pool. So not only is it not profitable, but there's a lot of risk involved and a lot of like operating expenses involved in doing so. And so as a result, to make running a pool a good idea, you basically need to have other sources of revenue where you get the hash rate into the pool 
And then you sell those miners other products so that you can actually run a viable business. So in our case, we focused a lot since 2018 on firmware for the ASICs, which in 2018, we launched it with supporting ASIC Boost in an, with an open source firmware implementation, which basically just software that made the machines run about 13% more efficiently at no extra cost. And we released that free and open source. And then in 2019, we realized there's a real demand for even better firmware, which can also play on the, the silicon lottery a little bit, which means like basically each individual mining chip can be a little bit different just because of the differences in silicon quality and, and other small factors. And the firmware from the hardware manufacturers typically treats those chips all as the same. It will send the same frequencies and voltages to all the chips. And for, for Brains firmware and, and other third-party firmwares, the realization was if you figure out which chips are higher quality than others, you can actually calibrate frequencies and voltages and get better performance from the machine just with software tweaking, no hardware modifications at all. And because you can do that, you make more Bitcoin per unit of energy that you're consuming per watt, then we have something that we can viably charge a fee for because we're providing enough value. Like if a miner gets a 15, 20% profitability uplift and we charge a 2% fee, then we're no longer stuck in this race to the bottom on pool fees that we have because we can sustain on the firmware, which is providing enough value to miners to justify that kind of fee. So that's been our, our main focus in order to keep the pool running and remain a, a viable business long-term. But other mining pools have done different types of diversification. I think the most common being financial services like once you mine the coins, you can put them into a custody service and then you can earn some yield on it or things like that. Got it. So the the firmware piece where you're getting more performance out of your miners, that's what you guys were, are doing with uh, Brains OS Plus. Exactly. Where, and that's where you're, you're doing exactly what you just explained, where you're trying to maximize the actual hardware efficiency based on the routing in the silicon chip. Exactly. So hash rate is dependent on the frequencies and the chips. And you can find which chips like through calibration process. Basically, auto-tuning is just try a bunch of different things and see what works the best and gradually like narrow in on that and find those settings. Um, and then it's also it, it's enabling a lot of customization because uh, you can set the, your power consumption at a wide, wide range of limits. For example, with an S19, stock consumption is 3,250 watts. But with Brains OS Plus, you can auto-tune it down at 1,500 watts, find like your really efficient settings that are going to maximize your BTC per watt of energy. But at the same time, you're not going to have as much overall production because you're running at that low power setting. On the other hand, you can overclock with the stock PSU, you can overclock into the 4,500 watt range. With a custom PSU, you can do it 6,000, 7,000, even 8,000 watts on an S19. And you can almost double the hash rate of one of those machines just with the software. Uh, wow. And there's all kinds of complexities that go into that, like immersion cooling and, and custom PSUs and different things. But basically, it's, it's enabling a much more customizable way of operating machines and operating mining farms at large. 
How do you view, I mean, that that's so fascinating because I've talked with other miners as well, talking about, oh, well, you can try and overclock and get more performance out of the same hardware. And I'm assuming this makes an enormous difference in terms of equipment longevity. And then you're wondering, how do I plan this out based on my farm? My question for you is, how do you see immersion cooling versus air cooling affecting the longevity of chips? Um, I, I think immersion cooling is not overhyped, and I think it's very, very hyped. So <laughs> I think to put it together with the firmware thing, like if you have air-cooled machines, you don't really want to push those more than maybe 20% above stock, stock power consumption, because then you're getting into those machines are going to be producing a ton of heat and dissipating that heat's going to be really difficult. So maybe if you're in Iceland or Siberia or something in the middle of winter, you could overclock and you'll be safe because it's just so cold outside. But for the majority of miners who aren't in those freezing cold conditions, overclocking in air is going to damage the lifespan of the machine for sure. And it's also increasing your short-term risk of things like overheating, causing a fire, whatever the case may be. And primary reason that hardware lifespan degrades is that you have fluctuations in temperature and the different components of the machine might respond differently to those fluctuations. So like maybe the silicon is expanding as it's heating at a faster rate than some of the, uh, the metal components in the machine. And then that causes things to move around just a little bit. And eventually that happens enough times that the machine starts to degrade in performance or even stops working altogether. And immersion prevents that because the heat density of the coolants in immersion is so much greater that there's not really the, the possibility of having such wild temperature swings as long as you have like your system is operating properly and you have your pumps are managing the flow of the fluid through the tanks and stuff properly. Then you don't have to worry about the temperature of the fluid on the chips swinging by 10 degrees Celsius in a, in a couple of minutes and damaging the hardware. So immersion really enables a lot more flexibility in terms of what I was talking about before of operating the machines at, at much higher capacities or even just changing the power consumption of the machine on a really quick interval where maybe if you're participating in some grid balancing program or something that you need to go from 100% to 1% in under a minute doing that in air means you're going to need to still keep running your fans for a little while just to make sure that the machines cool off properly. Whereas maybe doing that in immersion, you can just go straight down and the fluid's going to take care of that heat dissipation and make it happen at a good steady rate so that the machines stay safe, safe during that time. Yeah, it's, it's something that it's been talked about for a while, but it just seems like just from, <laughs> just from understanding how the machines run and how you're running them nonstop, it would be a lot better to have them in an environment where you're trying to get multiple years out of these machines. You want them to be taken care of and liquid seems to take better care of the machines. So for sure. So going on, um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about how you see the future of mining pools. And now that there's increasing competition, as you touched on, these mining pools are going to have to find different ways and different revenue streams to become profitable. It could be the firmware, it could be financial services. Is there anything else there that we didn't touch on that you think might be adopted by certain mining pools or something that, that is important to, to be aware of as 
we get further along? I think the end game for mining pools is basically do as many things to help miners as you possibly can. So there are other things that you can do besides the firmware and the financial services like running hardware broker services or just being very well connected with hardware brokers and facilitating some of those deals. The fact that we as mining pools are connected with miners all over the world means maybe we have a little bit better knowledge about where is some open capacity for hosting or where are there some energy sources that are untapped that, that could be used for mining or things like that or even just like personal connections with talented people that can fill roles around the industry. Like mining pools can be the ones providing all kinds of those services that help the actual miners with, with things that maybe it's not so related to the mining pool itself, but it's just like a, an externality of, of having a bunch of clients around the world that you're communicating with, that you, you have that extra value you can provide. Even in our case, we have a, a very small content team, but content for large miners hasn't been a very big focus, whereas it's been a focus for us, at least for the last couple of years, because there's so much mis misinformation about mining that we really wanted to help people who are outside of the mining industry understand things better, understand what's going on. And now that more mining pools and mining businesses are in the US and Canada and Europe, that's not quite such a pressing need as it was before when it was all concentrated in China. But, but nevertheless, like we've developed this content team and, and we understand how to educate people outside of the mining industry on what miners are doing. And we can even offer that as a service to large miners that like, hey, you guys don't need to worry about like your, your public communications as much because we can help you with occasionally producing some content to let people know what you're doing and make it really digestible for people who aren't deep into the mining game. So it's really tons and tons of possibilities for mining pools to continue providing value even after the pool itself is no longer able to differentiate from other pools because all pools will eventually have pretty much the same features and offer super low fees that there's not going to be much to differentiate there. So it'll really be all those supplemental things. As a pool, you're speaking with a lot of different miners around the world, lots of different people along that whole value chain. And you're seeing the different mining facilities that are coming up. From your perspective, how do you see the energy mix of mining changing over time? Uh, because it's been one of the mainstream discussions in a really weird way for a while about the energy use of Bitcoin and and the energy sources, whether renewable or non-renewable. So I just wanted to get your take from all the conversations you've been having and and understanding how mining works. What do you think is primarily driving the, the mining industry? I think there's there's kind of countering trends. On the one hand, from my perspective, a viable energy source for mining is one that's economically feasible. Like whatever the source may be, if it's cheap enough that miners can be profitable with it, then they should be mining with it. And I think because of the other trends like just the, the investment that's going into renewable and sustainable sources and carbon credits and all of this type of stuff, maybe taxes on emissions, like those, those things will continue to influence miners towards cheaper and probably more renewable energy sources. Just because if you keep on adding extra costs to those non-renewable sources, eventually it won't be competitive to mine with them. And I think that's the way it should be. It should happen as a result of the economics, not as a result of, you know, kind of bending the knee to the to the people who don't really even 
understand or care how Bitcoin mining really works, which I think is the majority of the people who are outraged about what they perceive to be environmental damage being caused by the mining industry. But what we're seeing from inside the industry is that one, grid balancing is very, very real, like particularly in Texas, which is going to be the mining mecca for the foreseeable future with that ERCOT system and with all of the renewables that they have in West Texas, which are relatively far from large populations, uh, primarily wind power. Like we need some demand response resources uh, to balance our energy grids because uh, people don't realize that like if you're producing the energy and you have nowhere to consume it, that's a real, real problem for the grid. You can't just store energy in the transmission lines like that creates a lot of problems. So you either need batteries or you need to consume it or you need to not produce it in the first place. And miners are the ultimate demand response resource to be plugged in there because it's so easy to change that energy consumption like with the snap of a finger basically you run a command with some software and you can go from 3000 watts per machine down to 5 watts per machine in a matter of a few seconds and there's no other existing demand response resource that can come even close to that like other demand response resources would be like much larger industrial applications that they can ramp up and down, but they can't do it on a 15 or 20 or 30 second time scale. And they can't do it off. And for that matter, the fact that Bitcoin miners can get paid to turn off when the grid really needs the energy, or at a minimum, they, they get a lower electricity price for making the commitment that they will turn off if needed. That it makes it economically advantageous really for them to be demand response resources. And that provides a great value to society because not only does it help us balance the grids in the short term, but then it's also helping us with the long term producing more energy, which is what we really want to do. We don't want to consume less energy. We want to produce more. That's, a, that's it, a big key, too, when you think about it. I mean, I feel like everyone almost attacks energy use, but a lot of the things that we enjoy, I, I don't think we're going to become a more productive society by consuming less total energy. I think the conversation should be framed in, hey, guys, how are we going to more sustainably power our society and give everyone, have, produce enough energy as a society to support a lot of the people around the world who currently we don't have the resources to support from an energy perspective? Uh, exactly. Bitcoin, as you mentioned, helps push that forward. It's very important. Yeah. People, people don't think about like poverty in terms of energy consumption because that's, it's always presented as like people who make less than $1 per day or people who make less than $10 per day and like these poverty brackets based on income. But there's that mm -hmm. same relationship based on energy consumption, like poverty, prosperity, on the other hand, prosperity is directly tied to consuming more energy. So the more prosperous humans become, the more energy each human consumes to do the things that they want to do. Uh, and we can even see that with wealthy people in our society, like the wealthy people are the ones that are flying around on private jets and driving around on yachts and stuff. And that's consuming a ton of energy. And they have a lot of wealth that enables them to do that. And meanwhile, on the other side of the spectrum, we have people who still don't even have any electricity to begin with. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. But a big one is like with political risk and stuff in some of those areas, it's just not economically viable to invest in producing energy 
even where it could be produced. Like, for example, Ethiopia has tons and tons of rivers that they could be producing massive amounts of hydropower well beyond what they need themselves. And then they could be exporting the energy to all of their neighboring countries. But there's a lot of political risk there that probably disincentivizes people from making that investment. And perhaps in the next five, 10 years, or maybe it's going to take even longer. But if Bitcoin continues on the, the trend that it's on, perhaps eventually Bitcoin mining will be the thing that unlocks the that extra power production capacity that exists, that it's just not currently the risk reward is not attractive enough for people to be doing it. But mining changes the risk reward on any large scale energy production project because it provides a consumer of the energy that you know is going to be there for every last watt that you produce. So it, it takes away a lot of the risk starting a new energy project because maybe, for example, with a solar project somewhere remote, maybe you have the capacity to build a large solar farm, you could produce a bunch of this energy. But the issue with you invest all that money in the solar farm, and then it's going to take two or three years to connect it to the grid. And you're going to be producing energy that you just have to waste in that entire time. And then maybe even once it's connected to the grid, you don't have a population center close enough to consume all of it. So a lot of it continues to be wasted, or you need to invest in really expensive batteries. And there's all kinds of supply chain issues with batteries too. And like eventually we're going to run out of lithium to produce enough batteries that we need. So there's all these issues that Bitcoin mining just plugs in as the, the ideal solution or as close as we have to the ideal solution and makes it so that we can both produce more energy and a larger mix of that energy can be sustainable and renewable. And then there's other use cases not to keep rambling, but like consuming natural gas that would otherwise be vented and flared. Like that's an incredibly environmentally friendly use case for mining that no other industry or application can that use case as well as Bitcoin mining can because one, it doesn't need to be close to the population center. So these oil and gas wells are typically very far away from people and you could run that gas through a combustor, but then you still have to transport the energy somewhere. And that's very rarely going to be economically viable for most of those remote gas wells. But you can just put Bitcoin miners right there and consume it and prevent it from being flared and vented, prevent methane emissions, do it much more efficiently, provide some economic value for the energy as opposed to wasting it from an economic standpoint. And all of that can be done in a way that's incredibly scalable and scale specific. So if you have a couple hundred kilowatts of natural gas production, then you put, you know, 50 or 100 machines there or a couple megawatts and you put a few hundred extra machines there. So you can scale it precisely for what you need in each one of those locations. And like yeah. there's no there's nothing else that can do that. Like it's incredible how how well Bitcoin mining fits for all of these applications that are actually incredibly environmentally friendly. Yeah, for, for the flare gas, you put it there, capture the flare gas, run the miners. For the renewable projects, you put them there, it's easier to plan projects, makes projects more economically viable, you have more solar. With In Ethiopia, exactly. as you mentioned, there's a lot of energy that could be built around getting captured, exporting that energy in different types of ways through industry, instead it's wasted. Um, without mining. And so yep. with all this said, it, it, it seems pretty clear that the narrative starting to shift. You're starting to see more people understand exactly what it is that you're talking about. 
in terms of the applications of Bitcoin mining. So with that said, what do you think is happening over the next handful of years in the energy sector because of mining? I, I think it's, it's pretty clear through a lot of the conversations I've been having that the energy companies, they're not completely asleep at the wheel. They see that this is happening and they're trying to get involved. And then you have the large miners trying to figure out how this crossover is going to happen. So from your perspective, what do you think, what do you think is going to be going on here in the next, I would say, two, uh, two to six years? I'm going to go uh, based on the halving cycles. <laughs> yeah, perfect. This is the, the thing that makes me the most optimistic about Bitcoin in general. I just see energy, anybody involved in the energy industry, I see them all getting orange-pilled in the next few years. I see a lot of them getting orange-pilled right now from all parts of the industry. Like I talk to people doing solar and wind developments who probably would be in the, they're people who, are, who really care about having a more renewable denominated energy grid and energy mix. And they're starting to understand the way that the mining economics can help them produce more renewable energy. So they're getting orange pilled slowly but surely through mining. On the oil and gas side, it's even much faster and larger because they've been getting demonized by society for years and years and years. And so they're a little bit more open to the idea that Bitcoin mining is actually environmentally friendly to begin with because they just see from their own experiences the way that the mainstream media and, and people in general tend to misunderstand the value that they provide to society so that they can kind of relate with Bitcoin miners really well. And I'm seeing a huge, like the, the line between oil and gas energy guys and Bitcoin miners is being bored very, very rapidly. And I think those two industries are starting to gradually merge into one almost where I could mm -hmm. see a future where pretty much every oil and gas company that has large operations is going to have to have some Bitcoin mining component to be competitive with all the other companies doing it. It's the same game theory that plays out with Bitcoin in general. I think plays out with Bitcoin mining and energy production. And it works for nuclear, it works for oil and gas, it works for solar and wind. Anything that Bitcoin mining can make more economically viable, it's just like inevitable in my eyes that, that that's going to happen, that those people on the energy side of things are going to start to understand Bitcoin. And mining is the, the portal for them to do that. And I think once, like, that's a lot of really, really smart, talented people in our society that once those people are heavily orange pilled, I think that they go on and they're the, the next step in the network effect, but they then take it to all of their relatives who really trust them because those are, those are people who understand energy really well. So when they start to say, oh, Bitcoin mining is, is really great for the environment and Bitcoin is really great for society, then their friends and family believe them because because they're coming from a like well-educated and balanced perspective. So I think in order to orange pill society at large, we will need to have people who are a little bit less just adamant Bitcoiners and libertarian and, and all of these things, people who are a little more relatable to the to the average person, the typical person. And I think that those those people from the energy side who are getting orange pilled now can be that that real uh, next leap forward in the network effect. I, I completely agree. I think that it's going to be fascinating how that plays out. And I agree that that's the type of world we're moving towards. So after everything that we've discussed here, what's the most exciting thing that you're seeing right now 
that we haven't touched on yet? I have something not necessarily directly mining related, but well, yeah, it is. So I, I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil right now, and I've spent most of the past year in Latin America between Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, and then a brief time in Paraguay. And the most exciting thing for me right now is realizing that South America and Latin America are going to be major players in the mining industry. When the China mining ban happened, I was not over the moon happy about it because at the end of the day, China and the US are competitors in a lot of different aspects. And having two countries who are that competitive with each other both be major players in the mining industry, I viewed as great for decentralization. I didn't want, you know, the concentration that was in China was too much. I wanted the U.S. to continue to gain market share. Other places continue to gain market share and China lose market share. But I didn't want China to go away. It would be nice if China has 25%, the U.S. has 25%, Europe has 10%, South America 20%, stuff like that. Would, that, would, that would be a great distribution. But the trend that we're on now is the U.S. becoming dominant, not to the same extent that China was at its peak, but maybe even the U.S. becoming, you know, 40% of hash rate, per perhaps even a majority of total network hash rate. And I view that as a risk, perhaps even greater than China, the, the risk that China posed, because uh, the issue with the U.S. would be regulatory capture, as opposed to with China, people are worried about like the government attacking Bitcoin by taking over mining operations and pools. I think with the U.S., there, the concern wouldn't be a direct attack like that. The concern would be the U.S. government regulating miners heavy handedly to the extent that Bitcoin loses some of those features, or at least a part of some of those features that make it valuable, like censorship resistance, and maybe permissionlessness of mining also decreases a little bit. And so from that perspective, I really wanted to see hash rate growing elsewhere in the world outside of the US so that we would decrease that risk of regulatory capture of the mining industry in the US and Canada for that matter. And so that's what's so exciting about realizing that South America can be that place to gain a really significant market share. It's not going to happen overnight because infrastructure takes a long time to build and there's not the access to capital markets and stuff in South America that we have in the US and Canada. But I do see it happening over the next three to five years where we could see really, really sizable mining operations and a sizable percentage of the overall network hash rate being in places like Paraguay, which is producing tons and tons of hydropower. Brazil has a lot of energy resources spread around, uh, particularly in the north. I've heard about like wind. They're also sharing a lot of the hydro that's produced at the the Itaipu Dam border of Paraguay and Brazil. Argentina has really cheap energy from a couple of different sources, uh, natural gas being a big one. Venezuela obviously has tons of miners already who are also heavily orange-pilled because they're the people who, who really need something like Bitcoin to, to, to survive, really. Like yeah. a single Antminer S9 can, can produce more value for a Venezuelan in one day than they might make in an entire week or an entire month working a, a typical job there. So I'm most excited about hash rate coming to South America, also because I, I love spending time here. So it it's, provides a good excuse for me to, to keep doing that. Yeah, that, that's incredible. So I've got one final question for you. It's a tough one. 
what is one belief you hold to be true that the majority of people would disagree with you about? I feel like because Bitcoiners generally hold a lot of contrarian beliefs, I'll go with a belief that a lot of Bitcoiners would disagree with me on, as opposed to the, a bunch of normies, yeah. so to speak. So that, that would be universal basic income. I actually believe universal basic income would be like progressive for society. Just briefly, the reason why is that like, I only believe this in the, in the events that it is replacing the welfare system and replacing any minimum wage mandates. So basically, my idea is the welfare system has a lot of bad incentives, malincentives. Part-time work is disincentivized because you lose your unemployment benefits. And a lot of times you end up with less money working a part-time job than you would have if you just stay unemployed. Unemployment in general, like we saw during the early, the first year, year and a half of COVID, people were making more money staying home than they were than they would be making from working. So that incentivizes them to keep staying home. And I think the main reason that people don't want UBI, Bitcoiners in particular don't want UBI is that they imagine everybody like sitting on their couches doing nothing because they're getting those UBI checks. I think that would be true for some small portion of the population that doesn't want to do anything. But if I do nothing for a week, I'm absolutely miserable. And I think, and most people I know are the same way, like, sure, people want to take vacations and stuff. But if you're doing nothing every day for a long time, you become pretty miserable. And I think what UBI would do is it would change the incentives in the labor market. And it would incentivize people to start doing different types of work, maybe that, that gives them different benefits from what they would do today. So for example, somebody Maybe somebody really smart and talented works a job just because it pays them very well, but they don't actually want to be doing it. And they're just doing it to make that kind of money. And maybe their talents would be better spent doing something else in society that's not as valued from a monetary perspective. It doesn't produce as much profit, but maybe it pr produces value in, in a different way. Like, for example, if somebody wants to stay at home with their kids, like there's no economic value assigned to that job right now. Basically, you can only do that if one of the, the two people in a couple is making good enough money that you don't both need to be working. In a UBI system, maybe we have a lot more stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home dads even that spend a lot more time with their kids, do a lot better job raising their kids. They don't outsource raising their kids to their daycare providers and school teachers. And then we end up with a lot more well-rounded kids who didn't spend their entire childhoods like neglected by their parents because their parents were working 10 hours a day. Like I think UBI would have a lot of consequences that people don't realize just by providing that changing the incentives structure enough that people might change how they behave. And I think there's a lot of concern about it just turning into a giant welfare state that when I look at it, it's, we already have a giant welfare state, like the government spending spent like $9 trillion in the past year. So I would rather have UBI than have the welfare state that we have today that's got a bunch of bad incentives attached to it. And then on top of that, I, I just think it would help decrease some of the social division that we have if there wasn't this politicized issue. Obviously, there would be people who would be against UBI, but I think it would take us off of the slippery slope that we're on and put us onto a different one of like politicians promising higher UBI checks in order to get elected. And that's not a great 
thing to see, but I think it's better than what, what we have now. And the last point on that is that I think it would cause a lot of inflation, which we're already getting. But at least in that case, it's the opposite of the cancel on effect. Where like today, credit creation, money creation typically goes to the wealthy first. They get the most benefit from it. And by the time it trickles down to the people at the, the lower income side of the economy, it's already like hurting them more than it's benefiting them because of inflation. So in a UBI world, I think we would have more bottom up inflation as opposed to top down inflation. And that would be a net positive for things like wealth inequality that causes a lot of social problems in society. So yeah, that's my contrarian to Bitcoin or belief. That's awesome. I, I actually want to dig in a little bit more on, on this topic because you're the for first sure. person that's laid out this this thesis for a UBI in that type of a way. In your scenario, you were talking about how it would be replacing the welfare system that we have today. So you would still be looking at having that level of spending or like, I guess, in your type of a, a world with UBI, how do you see it being implemented? And like, what role a government play in that? Like in terms of the implementation, the biggest benefit I see is like, there's not a lot of bureaucracy attached to it. So with the welfare state, you have social workers who are checking if people are applying for jobs that maybe they don't even actually want to get. Like I heard during the, the early like months in the first year and a half of COVID, a lot of people like just applying for jobs so that they could keep collecting the government checks, but not actually wanting the jobs because people who were employers kept on like having people not even show up to their interviews. So getting rid of that part, that just wasteful bureaucracy in the implementation. I really like that. It simplifies things a lot. You could basically just have automatic direct deposits to everybody's bank account for every registered taxpayer. And you don't need 40,000 social workers checking if people are, are doing things in order to get that money because you don't have to do anything to qualify for that money other than being a registered taxpaying citizen. So there, there's that. In terms of actually paying for it, we spend trillions on the military. We spend trillions on foreign influence and, and programs and stuff that I don't think it would be terribly difficult to find the money to do it. You get rid of the welfare state completely. You get rid of minimum wage completely. I don't want to get into it, but it's, it's actually like part of a, a bigger worldview that I have of like how things could be improved that actually I've talked with one of my best friends about it a lot. And it's more like his ideas than mine. I'm just kind of parroting them. But if we had a taxing system that was not based on money moving, like we have income tax, sales tax, corporate tax, uh, real uh, property tax, all of this stuff. And pretty much all of those taxes are like when a sale occurs, a certain portion of it goes to the government. Yeah. So it means that every like every dollar gets taxed into oblivion over a long enough time period because every time it changes hands, there's a, a portion of it that's going to the to the government. Mm -hmm. And I think, like in this completely unrealistic utopia, which I I don't actually believe that this is possible to implement, especially not anytime in the near future. But if, for example, we just had a tax that was like. And rather than the government like printing money and, and stuff like that, if we had like a programmatic inflation on assets that the government automatically gets. So say like every single stock in the stock market, in the US stock market, has 3% shares are created out of nowhere each year. 
and the government owns them and they programmatically sell the same amount of those shares every single day. And that's how the government funds itself. And we get rid of a lot of the other taxes like capital gains taxes, income taxes, et cetera. If we had that, I, I don't know the exact math, but let's say it's 3%. That would mean that like the ultra wealthy billionaires who everybody complains about, they don't pay their fair share of taxes because they don't need to move their money and, and create those events where they would be taxed. Well, now it's a non-issue because like they're, they own uh, large portions of those stocks. So mm -hmm. it's just inflating away value from assets as opposed to inflating away value from the money. And I think if the government was inflating away value from assets, it makes it much harder to evade taxes because like with property, for example, if just 3% of the, you, you pay 3% of that property value to the government each year, then like your option to not pay that tax is simply not owning the property. And if you're in the US, like people always want to offshore their assets so that they don't have to pay the, the US taxes on them. They'll offshore them to somewhere where they don't have as much of a tax burden or maybe no tax burden at all. Well, I think people want to own assets in the US because the US is where private property rights are relatively good. They're, they're well protected. So the assets have some value because of the lower risk in the US. So I think having a tax levied in that form, as opposed to taxing money on the move, it would not cause a lot more offshoring of assets because you still want to own property in the US. That's where it's most valuable because it's it has those property rights attached to it. You still want to own equity in US stocks. So I don't know exactly how it all worked out. And I, I don't think about it too much because I don't think it's realistic. But uh, like it's all part of the if you could just design the system anew and forget about like all the issues that would come with getting political acceptance for it and and getting politicians on board with something that would kind of make them obsolete, because uh, ultimately, like this, the system would simplify government a lot. It would get rid of a lot of bureaucracy and it would make most government jobs unnecessary. And that's a big reason that I like it. <laughs> but if, if you get rid of all of those caveats about why it's not feasible, I think it would work really well. It's just those caveats do exist in reality. So, so the, the more realistic answer is just like, we're already printing massive amounts of money. We're already bailing out giant corporations. We're already bailing out banks. Like, I think we have this corporate socialism pretty well established. Like large companies do not have risk anymore because the government will bail them out as we saw in 2008 and as we saw in 2020. And I think it's time to instead start bailing out the people instead of the corporations and the banks. That is an incredible quote to end on. We'll end it there. Thank you so much. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Will. This was really fun.